0: let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood and you're striving against sin and you've forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful. But Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, I pray for each one here that you will take uh, your words that we have just read. Burn them into our hearts, O God, so that we can think on them, feed on them, and be changed by them, and go out of here determined to live in accordance with them. Please give us this mercy, for we acknowledge it as such. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Since we've been back in uh, America, um, one of the things I do constantly when I'm um, in Zambia is I read. And I come back here, and I couldn't bring back any books. So I uh, have purchased a couple books, and one of them um, was a book in the area of track and field. And those of you who know me know that I used to do that. Um, And this was a book about Bill Bowerman, um, who was the coach of the University of Oregon track team during the 50s, 60s, and 70s. And uh, one of the things that I found interesting about that book is um, some of you may have seen the movie Forrest Gump. And one of the things that was kind of funny in that movie is uh, how Forrest Gump was present at many of the interesting turning points of our society. He taught Elvis how to dance. He uh, helped uh, um, uh, with with diplomacy through ping pong in China, all those kind of things. <coughs> Bill Bowerman was that kind of a person. He... Um, He's the one, some of you may be wearing them this morning. I'm looking at feet. He's the one who was the co-founder of Nike. Um, Nike was well known at the beginning for having um, a waffle sole. And he made those soles in his uh, basement using his wife's waffle iron to, uh, to do it. And, and, and did that without asking her and, and began Nike uh, on that basis. Um, he was also one of the, the Olympic track coach at the Munich Olympics in 1972. And most of us don't know anything about what he did, but soon after the Arabs went into the Israeli dormitory, um, some of them were able to escape out the windows and one of them was able to make it to uh, the American living quarters and knocked on Bowerman's door and said, uh, Arabs have entered our, uh, our dormitory and Bowerman. In a, he's, a, he's, he's a plain talker a blunt man said well just tell them to get out he said well they have guns and they've shot several of our people um, and, and Bowerman very quickly called up the U.S. Marines secured the American dormitory quick quick and was vilified for doing that um, by the Germans uh, this was the Germans presented this this was going to be the happy Olympic Games and as soon as Bowerman got there one of the first things he saw was there's no security um, well, uh, anyway, it wasn't just, you know, uh, by chance that he secured the American building because there were several Jewish athletes um, who were on the American team. Some of you may know that Mark Spitz, who won seven gold medals in the swimming part of the Olympics, was, uh, was Jewish in background. Um, in any case, one of the things I enjoyed about this book by Bowerman, and, and it was written, Um, by one of his runners who was an Olympic marathoner was to read the stories of runners and how they prepared for their races psychologically, how they trained for their races, all of those kind of things. One of the quotes that I appreciated was written by the author who did run the Olympic marathon race in Munich, finished fourth uh, in 1972. Here's what he said. If it is run right, a marathon inflicts some damage muscle cells rupture, joints crunching together 22,000 times wear away at tendons and cartilage. I ran it right, the crowd's approval roaring in my head on a cushion of blood blisters. While I was in Africa, um, I read about a race and and that, that quote from Kenny Moore about blood blisters that reminds me of it, I read about a race that is one of those ultra-marathon races. I don't know who or why people run this race. But um, there's a a race, it's it's farther north um, uh, of us in Africa. I'm not sure the exact country it's in. I don't know if it's Kenya or Sudan or what it is. Um, But they run the equivalent of a marathon every day for seven days. Uh, you have to go from point A to point B and and, and you run certain legs of it uh, every day. It it, it comes out to between 20 and 25 miles per day. And the article I read showed the pictures of the runner's feet. Um, And and, and if you're squeamish, you don't want to see those pictures. Um, But a marathon runner runs with the crowd's roar of approval in his mind, but he runs on a cushion of blood blisters. Muscle cells rupture. Joints are crunching together 22,000 times, wearing away at tendons and cartilage. And I thought that was a very good analogy for exactly how each one of us is to live the Christian life. Because, make no mistake about it, the Christian life is a race. It's not a 100-meter race. It's not an 800-meter race. It is an ultra-marathon. And if I read these verses correctly, it's not simply a marathon. It is a marathon relay race. The early verses in this chapter talk about that where it says that we are running this race before a great cloud of witnesses. And I think that that, the author was referring to the saints in the Old Testament from chapter 11. Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Rahab, Gideon, Barak, Samson. All of these lived by faith in their generation. And when they died, it's like there's an amphitheater and they take their seat in that amphitheater and then they watch the next generation run that race. So everyone in this room who is a believer in Christ, a follower of Christ, a Christian, is in that marathon relay race. Now, you could talk to some of the hoary heads in this room. Men and women who have lived the Christian life, who have run the race for a long period of time. And they could sit down and tell you story after story after story of people they knew in churches, in campus groups, who started running the race well. They were out there and everyone was saying, that guy, keep your eye on that guy. He's going to do great things for the kingdom of God. And then five years later, he's gone. Crashed and burned. Why? I believe this passage tells us why. If you don't do four things that come right out of this passage, you will crash and burn. You will be a casualty. What are those four things? The first one I think we have in in verse 1. The main verb in the early verses is run the race with endurance. And if we're going to run the race with endurance, we have to take sin seriously seriously. Verse 1 says, Let us also lay aside every encumbrance, and then I believe the author further defines that as the sin which so easily entangles us. Lay aside every encumbrance. Kenanisa Bikele is a 5,000, 10,000-meter runner from Ethiopia. How does he run the 10,000 meters? Does he do it dressed like David Canfield? No. Why? David has a suit and tie. Can't do that. Can't wear those kind of shoes. Bekele takes off everything so that he can run the race. Christian Olsen, best triple jumper in the world from Sweden... How does he prepare to do the triple jump? Does he do it in cowboy boots? I try and and, and give that illustration in Zambia and they have no idea what cowboy boots are. So I have to um, say tropicals. Now you all don't know what tropicals are, but they're flip-flops. No, you take off everything that might encumber you. Now I'm looking for somebody and uh, Gandalf, you'll have to be my guinea pig. Take up your sweater. Your arm on your sweater. Show me your arm. What's he got on his arm? Hair. It's fine. I know you're getting a little nervous when uh, um, I start asking you to take off your sweater. Uh, if he was a swimmer, what would he do? He'd shave it. When, when a swimmer is tapering for a big meet, they, they, they don't shave early in the season. They let them go. But when you point... For a big meet, you go through a process of tapering where the swimmers will shave everything on their arms and legs, sometimes even their head, or wear swimming caps. Why? Those little hairs going through the water might slow him down four hundredths of a second, and that could be the difference between first place and fourth place. Everything gets taken off by an athlete so that he can give his best performance on that day. What are we to do? This is a call to repentance. It's a call to lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. And you have to figure that out. The sin that Lawrence struggles with may not be the sin that so easily entangles me. And what I struggle with might be the same thing that Eleanor struggles with. But this is a call to look at yourself in the mirror and find out what are the sins that so easily entangle you. What are the sins to which you are prone and what are the circumstances in which you commit those sins and avoid those circumstances. It's it's a call to really get serious about dealing with the sin in your life. It's a call to repentance. Now, I've been helped very much by a 17th century Puritan author named Thomas Watson. I've never, I don't know why, I've never been helped when preachers stand up and give a definition of sin. I am helped by how Watson describes repentance because he describes what repentance looks like in a real life. And he mentions about six different things. He says repentance involves seeing our sin. And if you were to talk with the pastors and elders in this church, you would say that's the most difficult step right there to get people to actually see their sin. I know that's the most difficult thing for me to actually see where I am falling short. And the best way to do that is to look at yourself in the mirror of God's Word which gives you a standard and then to look perhaps with the help of others but to look at how you fall short in what areas. Repentance involves. It begins with seeing our sin. Watson also tells us that according to Scripture, repentance is a matter of sorrowing over our sin. The self righteous, the smug, the superstitious, the lazy do not grieve over their sin. Scripture gives us many examples of false grieving and a repentance that is unto life, a true grieving for our sin. Esau was an example of of a false grieving for sin. David was a good example of one who came clean with his sin. Watson also tells us that repentance is a matter of confessing our sin. We stop making excuses and we come clean and admit it. Now I'm not sure exactly why I'm still learning the culture of where I work in Africa but that's something that's very difficult for many Africans to come clean and admit sin. But is it really that different here? I don't think so. To come clean and to admit. Everything in my life likes to make an excuse. I told some of you uh, about uh, the presidential election in my home country and I, I sent an email to the church list about it. When I sent that email, I didn't realize what the true situation actually was. I just knew that the election was coming up and uh, that we should pray for it. Um, what I didn't know is that a challenger had emerged who was challenging the incumbent. Now, the incumbent, uh, the, the man who's been president for the last five years, is not an honorable man. There's been a huge amount of corruption in his administration, and many bad things have happened. Let me tell you about the, uh, the, uh, the challenger who came up um, to challenge him. And who was zooming ahead in the polls? Uh, he was playing on the people's desire to find excuses and to find scapegoats. The reason the situation is in the poverty and, and the degradation that it's in, it's not our fault. It's the fault of those Indians who are rich, who own all the shops in the country. It's the fault of those white farmers. Who make all that money? It's the fault of those people who run the mines and make all that money, yet it doesn't get invested back into the country. It's not our fault. It's the fault of other people. He was playing on those populist things, and he almost won. All through the day yesterday, I was getting reports from John Elizabeth Evans that he was far ahead by thousands, tens of thousands of votes. This morning I received an email that indeed uh, the incumbent um, has indeed pulled ahead and probably will win. Um, one of the things that the, uh, the, the challenger did do is he said that Robert Mugabe, who's ruined the country of Zimbabwe, I want to do everything that he did for our country of Zambia. And most of us were going, ay, 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 ay. We didn't like the incumbent much, and now we were ready to go out campaigning for him. What he did was he played on people's desire to find scapegoats and to make excuses for their situation. And a repentant person doesn't do that. Fourthly, Watson talks about repentance being a matter of being ashamed of our sin. I like the way he puts this, Blushing is the color of virtue. Fifthly, repentance is a matter of hating our sin. Romans 12, verse 9 says, Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. And finally, repentance is a matter of turning from our sin. Now, I don't know what's going on inside each of your lives today. If you're a normal group, some of you are toying with some pretty serious sins. And I hope that these words from Hebrews chapter 1 are enough to call you up short. A man can't take fire into his bosom and not be burned. You can't toy with sin and play around with it. It does burn you. And people crash and burn because they don't take sin in their life seriously. So I would plead with you to stop playing games with it. Now, if you've heard me so far, the news is pretty discouraging The only encouragement that I can find is that Scripture never tells me that I am justified on the basis of my repentance. I am justified. The believer is justified on the basis of faith in Christ alone. And that's the second point. If you and I are going to run this race with endurance, with perseverance, we have to look and fix our eyes on Jesus Christ. And that's what it says in verse 2. Fixing our eyes on Jesus the author and perfecter of faith. Now, athletes are normally disciplined, focused individuals. There are some people who have such natural gifting that they don't have to be disciplined and focused, but normally, most athletes, especially on the elite level, are disciplined and focused individuals. Their diet, their training, their amount of sleep, how they train at altitude... How they train at sea level, the amount of time they spend at altitude before they go back down to sea level, all of those kind of things get factored in. High jumpers, when they approach the bar, are focused on their step marks so that they will take off in exactly the right place. Poe vaulters, the event that I did, focus exactly and totally on the box where they're going to put the pole They don't look at the bar way up above there. They look at the box where they're going to place the pole. Focus. Discipline. How does the author draw us back and talk about the race that we're supposed to run? Our eyes are to be fixed on Jesus Christ. He's called the author and perfecter of our faith. Some of your translations might use a few different words. What does it mean that he's the author of our faith I can only find that our faith is initiated by him in fact I believe that he has won our faith for us by his redemptive work on the cross Jesus Christ alone evokes and stimulates faith he is the ground and object of our faith and indeed if you read chapter 11 the gaze of faith in every generation has focused on Jesus Christ and on him alone but he's also called The pioneer or perfecter of our faith. Jesus Christ is the only one who can sustain your faith over the long haul. If you talk to some of the hoary heads in this room, as I said, you could talk to them and they tell you about a number of people who started off like the race was a 100 meter sprint. And again, they're the ones that people focus on. Watch that one. I care very little for how a person, how fast a person goes at the beginning of their race. I care that they continue. I'm a jogger right now. I can't say a runner because I think if if you run, you actually have to attain a certain number of miles per hour. I don't actually do that. I'm a jogger. There are people who can walk faster than I run. Sometimes I refer to it as plotting. That's what John Wesley said. John Wesley said, give me plotters and I will conquer the world. Plotters, people who continue on doggedly. Jesus Christ is the only one who can sustain you plotting ahead. He is the supreme example of what it means actually to live by faith. He lived in moment-by-moment trust in his Heavenly Father. Now, look at the rest of verse 2. Where did Jesus, living by faith, where did it lead him? It obviously led him to the right hand of the throne of God, but where did it lead him initially? It led him to the cross. And if that's where it led him, you and I can expect nothing different. Nothing different. And that's the third point I've got. If you're going to run the race with discipline, you have to look at hardships and difficulties and sufferings and persecution as normal. And you have to see that God is working through those to discipline you. I don't have to tell you that athletes undergo all kinds of hardships and discipline. I was thinking recently in the course of this book about a young woman who was, during the 1980s, probably... America's best long-distance runner. Her name was Mary Deckard. Uh, She was not very tall, attractive, and probably America's um, best um, mile-run runner um, uh, among among women. And she came up to train with this guy that I read the book about. And so it it included a section on her. And And it talked about the tragedy of what happened with her in the 1984 Olympics. She was peaking right at that time. She was running her best time. She was clearly the best in the world. And she was going to win the race. But there was a a woman from South Africa named Zola Budd. Very tall, incredibly thin, who never ran with shoes. She ran barefoot. And and Zola Budd, what, what was going on in South Africa in 1984? There was apartheid. So the South Africans were excluded from the Olympics. Well, Bud's parents were actually British citizens, had British passports. And so she was allowed at the 11th hour to run for England in the Olympic Games. Well, the race had been going and it was coming down to the crucial last couple laps. And all of a sudden, Bud floated out past all the runners, including Deckard. But then when she cut back in, she didn't go far enough. And she cut back in too early. And for about five or six strides, Decker's legs and Bud's legs became entangled. And then finally, I I don't exactly know how it happened, but um, uh, Decker's leg got tripped. She fell to the ground and something happened with her knee that sent force up through her leg and her gluteus muscle was completely torn she fell down into the infield and she could not even get up. Her muscle was that ripped apart. And I don't know if some of you can remember, but there was a picture that was taken and shown in magazines and papers where Decker was literally snarling with rage that she had fallen down and couldn't even get up. Athletes know what it is to experience all kinds of difficulties and hardship. How are you going to view your difficulties, hardships, persecution? How should Jim Hogue view what's happening to him right now with regard to the Indiana University Department of Education? And I know some of you aren't aware of all that, but you asked Jim after the service what's going on. How should Jim view that? How should we view a number of the things that are going on that perhaps nobody knows? How do we view our hardships? This passage tells us that we're to view them as God's discipline. Discipline is not punishment for sin. The New International Version gives a poor translation of verse 6 where it uses the word punishment. I'll suggest a better translation later on. Discipline is not punishment for sin. The punishment for sin is death. Discipline comes from a Greek word that we get, the word pedagogue. Discipline is the process of learning, of schooling, of training, you could say of coaching. And every one of us knows that a coach, if he's going to train an athlete for a peak race or peak event, he has to put that individual through difficulty and suffering in his training to train him and prepare him. And that's exactly what God does. God, Think back over your life. When was the time where you experienced the most rapid Christian growth? Was it not when you faced one of the biggest difficulties in your life? I know. I lived with Terry as she worked through that. There was rapid Christian growth in her life over a period of time. And I can also say that with at least one of our children that that same kind of christian growth occurred in her life as a result of that robbery. Why did god have those three armed men come into our bedroom when i was gone? Is he a loving father? How should we look on that? Can't we look on it as discipline from the hand of a loving father? Terry spoke about some of the good things that came out of it I could go on every missionary with mission to the world now has a packet of ARVs that they are to take with them all the time so in case a woman is raped by someone who has AIDS she can begin taking those ARVs immediately And the quicker you start taking them, the less likelihood that you will be infected by the AIDS virus. Every MTW missionary, and there's like 600 around the world, now has that little packet. That came from that robbery. Every missionary in Zambia with Sudan Interior Mission now has a similar packet. That came from that robbery. God delights in bringing good things out of terrible, evil circumstances. But it comes from the hand of a loving Father who loves us enough to correct us and to train us. Discipline is not fun, but it's painful. The recovery from that robbery was not fun, it was painful. No question about it. That's exactly what this passage says. The discipline of the Lord, he scourges every son whom he receives. The word scourging there is the same word that was used for the flogging that Christ received just before he was crucified. So we have to be just clear and honest. It's not fun, it's painful. But it comes that we might grow in holiness. Verse 10 says. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Verse 10, He disciplines us for our good that we may share His holiness. I used to end my sermon right here. Perhaps it's not by chance that I figured out that there's something else that I needed to add to it. And that's all the way back in verse 2. When Jesus, uh, when He was enduring the mocking, the suffering, the people spitting on Him, the telling Him, if you're the Son of God, please come down from that cross and show us. When He was enduring all that, what sustained Him as He was going through that? What does it say in verse 2? who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. For every believer in this room, there is joy set before you. It's an everlasting joy and it makes everything that you find joyful here seem like nothing. Everlasting joy. Now the author Of Hebrews seems to have had this much in his mind because in chapter 10, verse 34, he talked about it. He said, For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves what? A better possession and an abiding one. I'll admit that one of the reasons I was worried about this challenger winning the election was I was worried about the house that we've invested so much in, I was worried that we'd lose it. People lose their houses all the time. People lose their church buildings all the time. We have an abiding possession. One that cannot be taken from us. Chapter 13 says that here we have no lasting city but we are seeking the city which is to come. If Jim Hogue sets his hope on this city he will not wage this battle well. But, if he focuses on the city that is to come and seeks to be obedient to the one who has granted him entrance to that city, then he will run that race that he's having to run right now through that difficulty. He will run that well. We're in the month of October right now. Fast forward a couple months and here's what I want you to do. The middle of the month of April, What's in April? Basketball's over. Basketball's gone. Track season has just started. Go to a track meet and make it a junior high track meet. Every year, Bachelor, what's the new one? Jackson Creek? Uh, Try North? Yeah, for me, Try North is kind of new. Um, I knew it long ago. Coach, has a little guy come out for track for the first time. And I can say these things because I was that little guy. He goes up to him and says, Coach, I want to be on the track team. He says, "Well, son, what event do you do? He says, I don't know. I like to run. Coach says, Why don't you run the mile? He says, Okay. Little guy probably comes to track practice about once a week, something like that, In the first meet, mid-April, go to it. Mile run will be the second event on the program, so you don't have to stay long. Little guy lines up. Mile run is four laps around the track. What happens after one lap? The little guy is 60 meters ahead of everyone else. I see Scott Clampett nodding his head. Scott's been to that track meet. He's seen that little guy, and he's thinking not 60, maybe 90 meters ahead. But people like Scott, they're cheering for him, but they're also laughing at him because they know what's going to happen on the back stretch of the second lap. An invisible, metaphorical, 900-pound grizzly bear is going to come out of the woods and jump on that little guy's back. He's going to go slower and slower, and the pack passes him, usually before the second lap is done. Usually he drops out, falling down on the infield. Sometimes... He finishes the race, but thereby delays the entire track meet by five to eight minutes. (laughs) Why? The little guy has never learned how to pace himself. That's normal. How do you pace yourself for this race? You pace yourself by doing these four things. And I'm just going to say it right here. You will not run the race with perseverance unless you do these four things. Now, I say that, and I believe in the final perseverance of the saints. I believe in that. But I also say that if you don't do these four things, you will be a casualty who crashes and burns. And the goal of every person in this church, among the elders and deacons and pastors, and all the mothers in Israel, is that every one of you who is a believer in Christ today, that you finish well. And if you don't do these things, you won't finish. Let's pray. Heavenly Father.